HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Rolling Press, a family-run, eco-friendly printing company. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. This is Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. It's Monday at 1 o'clock, and that means you are listening to Tech Bytes on the Heritage Radio Network, live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Jennifer Leuzzi, and every Monday we talk about technology and food and how technology is transforming our lives, including what we eat, how we make it, and how we share it. If you're interested in technology and food and that kind of thing, click on to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live or on demand. And Tech Bytes is also available as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. So today's show is really exciting. We're going to be talking about libraries, culinary archives, and digitizing menus. But before we get started, I'd like to introduce everyone who's with us today. Just in case they want to chime in, you can put a name to the voice. First up, the person who's most important, which makes this a radio show instead of me talking to myself in a shipping container in Bushwick, is Jack Inslee, who's the engineer. He also wears many Heritage Radio hats as the network's executive producer, and he hosts a show called Full Service Radio, which is Thursday nights at 7.30 p.m., and I have to tell you that I listened this week, and it was spectacular. Well, thank you. And I, can you call out who the D- guest DJ was on Thursday? He, if I urge everyone to go to heritageradionetwork.org, click on the archives of Full Service Radio, look for last Thursday night show, and then fast forward to about 34 minutes into it because there was this amazing Madonna Vogue walk with me, walk for me kind of mashup that was just really spectacular. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. His name is Whiskers Poe. Yeah, and you can find it all at heritageradionetwork.org if you click the full service radio button there. Lots of, I think there was episode 93, so there's plenty more to dig into. Yeah, I downloaded it and have been carrying it around with me and making people listen to it sort of wherever I go. (laughs) So that was a really wonderful discovery for me. So that's Jack. 
And our guests today are Marvin Taylor. He's the director of the Fales Library and Special Collections at New York University. He should be joining us on the phone. I'm here. Thank you. Hello, Marvin. Hi. And in the studio with us, we have Rebecca Fetterman. She's the Electronic Resources Coordinator and Culinary Collections Librarian at the New York Public Library. Hi. Thanks for coming down on a holiday and your day off. My pleasure. So before we get started on library collections and archives and menus, one of the things I like to do at the top of the show is talk about things that are trending on social media and talk about UGC, which is user-generated content. One of the things that technology has really done in terms of changing the way we interact with people is that it's really given a platform to everyone to have a place to share their voice and their point of view. We have blogs, we have writing, we also have Yelp and things like that. Here at TechBytes, it's really important, I think, to have the listeners have a piece of the action because that's kind of what technology is all about. So I encourage everyone to send in their ideas, their thoughts, their points of view at TechBytesHRN on Twitter and Instagram, on Facebook and at Gmail. And over the past couple of weeks, I've been getting quite a few emails from people, um, ranging from people who have seen the show online to friends and family. And I would say one in three people sends me something about an electronic 3D food printer. <laughs> <laughs> and with the Consumer Electronics Show, um, which is a giant consumer electronics trade show that happens in Las Vegas every year, that happened last week. And there were many, many launches of the 3D food printers. There's XYZ printing. There's the CocoJet 3D printer, which is collaborating with Hershey and the Culinary Institute of America. Um, there's ChefJet, ChefProJet that do candy and a Fudini printer out of Spain from something called Natural Machines. And they're really wonderful, fantastical, uh, magical machines in one sense. They're extremely expensive. And... It's not quite clear how good they are or are going to be because it comes down to what type of food product you put into the cartridge that it uses to put the 3D printer in. So if it's cocoa and chocolate and candy, that makes it a little bit easier. If you're trying to replicate ravioli and actual real foods like the Fudini printers, that becomes a different story. Um, but I think when people heard the idea of food and technology, everyone said, 3D food printer. <laughs> So I, I, I call that out, and anyone who's interested in discussing this a little bit more, there is a great show um, produced. It's a, I'm completely drawing a blank. It's one of the... I'm looking around for his picture because his picture is usually up here. The Dave Arnold. Thank you very much. <laughs> Cooking issues. He did a bit in one of his shows recently about the 3D printers. Um, and I'm not going to ruin it. He's a professional. He's a food innovator and a chef. But I encourage everyone to go back to the Science and Tech news page and, and look for that. So first up, let's talk with Marvin, who has, as I said, been... He's been at the New York University in library in the library department since 1993, which is 25 years ago, Kevin. almost. <laughs> almost. <laughs> and you are in a, a really wonderful position, I think, to tell us how technology has had an impact and evolved the collections over time. 
Um, well, certainly. It, uh, certainly things have changed completely from when I was in library school and we were still using punch cards. <laughs> and uh, um, and it's a very interesting it, 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 because along with the, the changes that have taken place in digital technology and technology in general, there's been a, a revolution that's taken place in food and especially food in libraries. And I'm, Rebecca will probably second this. Um, when I started in libraries um, in working with rare books, my director at the first place I worked, the Lilly Library at Indiana, um, had brought in a major cookbook collection, a historical cookbook collection. And he was sort of roundly made fun of in the rare book world for being interested in food and in culinary history. Um, which seems crazy to us now, but it was very much true. And so he did a bibliography of this massive collection of, of early cookbooks. I think the last cookbook that they had was probably like Brillant Savarin or something. It was really, you know, uh, medieval Renaissance books for the most part. Um, and even as late as 12, 10 or 12 years ago, when Marion Nessel came to me at the Fails and said, you know, we need to build a food collection, um, she had been receiving resistance from putting cookbooks into the library collection. And uh, so we've seen a huge change, um, and now we are seeing even more as technology just moves us further along. So... When you started in 1993, what did the library collection look like then? Well, we had the, uh, the Fails collection, which was built by a, a collector named de Courcy Fails, who collected the history of the English and American novel beginning in 1908. And in 1956, he offered the collection to Harvard, because the Fales family were all Harvard men. And Harvard turned the fiction collection down, because they weren't going to put fiction in the rare book room. And I tell this story because it sounds similar to people not wanting to build food studies collections. Uh, the novel had, in the 18th century, of course, was thought of as popular entertainment and perhaps slightly salacious. And so, um, in fact, I, re I reminded my dean when she said, why are you going to build a food collection? I reminded her that, uh, that de Courcy Fales had been turned down by Harvard for his novel collection. Um, and so we, the, the other things that we had at Fales at that point were a general rare book collection. Um, and so, but the Fales collection was the gem of, of what we had. So I was in many ways free to use his thoughts and, and his methodologies to build new collections that would support research that was going on at NYU. So it was really the spirit of the Fales collection that then allowed you a place to start to create the culinary collection, which was named the Mary Nessel Food Studies Collection in 2003. Yes. Um, Marion had uh, a vision for food studies, and when she created the, the first food studies department uh, at NYU um, about 20 years ago now, uh, and uh, she wanted something that was beyond culinary history, beyond the science parts, beyond the, the hotel school, but something that really looked at food as a central way of understanding culture. And so uh, she put that forward to the university and eventually to the state and was able to create a program that's a, where we are accredited to give out PhDs in food studies. And since then, it seems like everyone in academia and well and across the, the culture in general has become interested in food in very serious ways. Um, and uh, as culture studies, I think, have, have taken over academia, food has ridden that, uh, that wave. Uh, for instance, last year, the American Historical Association said that there were more dissertations on food topics than any other singular topic. That's which amazing. I find 
really hard to believe, but wonderful. So today the collection holds over 58,000 cookbooks, pamphlets, and menus and other things about food. Is that right? Yeah, well, there are 58,000 cookbooks, and then there are probably now somewhere around 10,000 pamphlets, and then the archives of various uh, organizations such as Les Dames d'Escoffier of New York, the New York Women's Culinary Alliance, uh, individuals like Cecily Brownstone, James Beard, Marion Nessel, Betty Fussell, uh, and where our real focus with archival holdings is on New York's contributions to changing American thoughts about food. Um, the, the print collections, of course, are very, very broad, and uh, especially with the inclusion of Dahlia Carmel's collection, uh, increasingly international and global in scope. Dahlia is a private collector and, and uh, food historian who's given us, a, to date, uh, 11,000 and counting cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I think she needed to clean out her apartment so she could collect more. But she's a, a, an amazing cookbook collector. I would love to have an apartment that could hold 11,000 cookbooks. <laughs> <laughs> they were stacked to the walls here and there, but all very, very neatly and very beautifully cared for. So is most of the collection print and paper? Uh, a large portion of it is print and paper, though increasingly we are getting video and born digital materials. Pretty much this, at this point, any collection that we bring in of contemporary 20th and 21st materials is a hybrid collection. It has born digital materials and, and video and audio in it as well. Uh, in fact, I've become very, very interested in the, the process of preserving born digital and uh, video materials and audio. In fact, I often say and, and sometimes get criticized that we need to stop digitizing paper until we solve the problems of, of electronic media. And uh, until about a year ago, I was really worried about the, the digital board digital materials. But we've hired a digital archivist who has assured me that, uh, that digital materials are a lot more stable than we thought they are, uh, which I found very interesting. And uh, they linger even after you sometimes don't want them to. <laughs> and so, um, and for instance, the, the, the tools that he's using to image materials off of hard drives and then load them onto our, our, our preservation servers uh, is called the Forensic Toolkit. And it's the same thing that the FBI uses to, uh, to investigate people's personal computers. Well, uh, I think one of the challenges with digital media, and we've all probably experienced it at one time or another when you've transferred your music library from one piece of technology to another, from one program to another, from one computer to the next, digital... Assets seem to be a little bit of a contradiction. On the one hand, they seem like they'll live forever. The internet will live forever. That blog you started on Blogger in 2003 is probably still there. It <laughs> whether is. <laughs> you, whether you pay attention to it or not. So on the one hand, it seems like it will you know, live and continue forever. But on the flip side of that, the format and the device you store it on and then access it on is, is the piece that becomes... A little tricky. So I would be curious, from your point of view, Marvin, when you are saying digital born and then you're starting to collect these things, what type of tech and storage decisions are you making? Well, I think the, one of the uh, people who have actually investigated this the most are people who are preserving uh, born digital artworks. 
and and time-based media works. And so there are sets of guidelines out there for the difference between transference, emulation, migration, um, and uh, what you try to do. Because we're trying to preserve the most accurate historical copy of something within special collections. But sometimes that means that uh, the content can be migrated to new software. Uh, ideally, we would like to... Um, keep it with its original software, especially if it's an artwork, but sometimes that's not necessary. Um, and so, and of course, costs differ depending on what you're trying to do. If you want to say, uh, for instance, we have an artist who worked exclusively in digital, um, uh, creating digital paintings. Um, he used every different version of Photoshop as it came along. So in order to preserve his work, we actually have to include the software within the wrapper that we put around those files. Um, with food materials, we might not have to do that. You know, we might be able to migrate uh, versions of recipes from Epicurious from one system to the next system to the next system and not worry about if the design looks slightly different. Uh, those are decisions that we have to make with all digital collections now going forward. So, and, uh, so in addition then to deciding to save the article or the artwork or the book, you then have to save the actual piece of technology meaning the computer the e-reader or and then within that you also have to save the program that it was created in so that you can view it and access it yeah the the, the problem is with with hardware um its obsolescence is much worse than the software than software obsolescence we can for the most part move the the software along with us the hardware we really are going to have to give up on um and this is going to be a problem for you know things that are that depend on cathode ray televisions, for instance. But I think with most food materials, we're willing to you know to have it live on the next new technology. Um, so yeah. that's a great. The next new technology is a great break point for us to take our midpoint break. And when we come back, we will finish talking with Marvin, and we'll also talk with Rebecca. Today's program was brought to you by Rolling Press. Rolling Press is a family-run digital and offset print house that brings together eco-friendly methods, ethical practices, and personalized service. Using environmentally responsible papers, non-toxic inks, and wind power, Rolling Press represents the harmony of traditional craftsmanship and mindful sustainability. Rolling Press offers advice on reducing paper waste and energy consumption, helping you save money and minimize your carbon footprint. For more information, visit rollingpress.com. Just tuned in, and you're wondering what you've clicked on. This is Tech Bytes on the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from two shipping containers inside of Roberta's Pizza in Brooklyn. I'm Jennifer Leutze, your host, and today we're talking about the influence of technology on our culinary life, specifically on how we save that and share that culinary life in the form of cookbooks and menus and great stuff like that. And we've been talking with Marvin who is the librarian at NYU Library, who oversees the 
Fails Collection and Special Collections at New York University. And we also have in studio Rebecca Fetterman, who is at the New York Public Library. And she is head of the Electronic Resources and is also a part of the Culinary Collections one of which has a very interesting project that we'll get to, which is called What's on the Menu. But first off, Rebecca, tell us, um, Electronic Resources Coordinator, what does that mean? <laughs> um, that means I handle the library's subscription databases, the, the library's research databases. Those are um, online content that is not openly available on the web, and they're largely um, they're published by academic publishers that make subscriptions available to libraries, and then libraries make that content freely available to our patrons. So um, reference works that have been moved online, academic ebooks, things like that. And then the culinary collection. Yes. Um, I work with the culinary collection specifically at the 42nd Street Schwartzman building. Um, and that just means I, you know, I, I decide or help decide what kinds of cookbooks we acquire. And um, I help oversee the library's menu collection as well. The menu collection is something that is very special, I think. Can you tell us about the menu collection and what's happening with it online right now? Sure. Um, we've had a, a physical menu collection, a physical menu archive um, for many, many, many years. It started around 1900. And right now we have about 45,000 menus in the collection. These are physical print menus that are housed in the library and they're organized for the most part chronologically. Um, and in 2011, the library decided to, we decided to start a project, which would be to digitize some of the menus and to crowdsource the transcription of those menus. So what we were seeing are, were people, researchers coming in to use the physical menus, but looking for, in the past, people had come in looking for a date range or looking for a specific menu or for, from a specific restaurant. But we were noticing that people were actually looking for specific dishes over time, things that weren't necessarily easy to catalog in the traditional catalog. So we felt that by digitizing them, it would make it easier for people to actually just transcribe the dishes on each menu with the price so that we could then track the dishes over time and researchers could hone in specifically on, on that kind of detail. And also for a lot of researchers who can't necessarily make the trip to New York to do research with menus, it would open up the menus to a much wider audience of international users. And we've seen that to be true. Um, we've seen people from Europe who have consulted our wine lists um, online, which we never really were able, obviously, to catalog at an item level. And they didn't even necessarily know we had these wine lists because they weren't, you know, finding it on our website, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's opened by digitizing it. We've not, we've not only been able to get more information about each menu open, but we've been able to sort of broadcast the menus more openly as well to, to a wider use, wider audience. So the What's on the Menu project, which is menus.nypl.org, yes. if people want to take a look and check it out. It's really very interesting. So it sounds like the impetus for the project was to, one, digitize the menus so people in geographically far away could access them and just see them. But then the secondary, and it sounds like the more interesting and more useful for research and writers and historians, the, the secondary piece is cataloging it and basically tagging everything so you can create some sort of internal search engine where I can say I'm interested in the New York strip steak 
when did that start? How much has it costed over time on menus? It probably started at Delmonico's <laughs> and was a dollar, you know, was 27 cents on the menu and, you know, track it through time. So is it really a, a, a tagging search engine kind of project? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, we had, those were the two reasons we wanted to digitize them. And we haven't digitized the whole collection. And um, hopefully we'll get around to doing that. But that's not to say that people don't want to still come in and consult the physical menu. Because if you're a researcher who is looking at material culture and you really want to see the stains and you want to feel the paper and you want that sensation of being in an archive and consulting the menu itself... Um, you, researchers still want to consult. Just because we're a digital equivalent doesn't mean that the physical isn't um, isn't helpful or doesn't provide information as well. Um, but yeah, the reason we digitized or have been digitizing the menus is for that. Is for that. So many questions. So my first question to both of you is, what type of search platform or information platform are you using? in terms of inputting all the information and making it searchable. Do you, and Marvin, I assume that when you were talking about punch cards, that was computer and do you have, you, I'm assuming you have computerized search on the archives at the library also. Um, depending. Uh, we Most of what we're doing is based on uh, archival processing and use of EAD, encoded archival description. Um, but, and then we're embedding, say if we do, if we take a journal, digitize it, uh, and then we're embedding that information within the finding aid. Uh, and that's, that's the way we provide a lot of this material. Uh, sometimes we'll also do a record in the online catalog that links to it so that students who might not know that they're even in an archival collection could have access, to, say, to a manuscript cookbook. And then, Rebecca, with the New York Public Library, what type of search engine or database is the information going into? Um, for the menu collection, it's it's a... Uh, uh MySQL database, um, and then I mean it's not living on necessarily the um, the MYPL site, um, and that's one of the goals is to integrate more of our content into one, you know, place to find all of the information. For the future, we were talking about the future of technology and the future of the library collections. Is information searchability and database a, a critical part of what's? needed or coming in the future? Are libraries themselves being participatory in the creation of the databases and the search engines that you need? Well, it's interesting because there are the, you know, I, I work with a lot of movement from print to E, so reference books moving from print to E, which is fantastic because you have 24-7 access to this content, it changes, it's updated by publishers, etc. But the minute the content moves online, it's actually quite a bit harder to find. So I think discoverability is a huge issue. And the way that people normally go about finding information or doing research if you consult a finding aid or if you consult a catalog and then you know where to go in the library to get that access to that content, it's much more, it's, it's not more difficult online, but it's just harder to find the content that you need. Um, and everyone's focused on search, but not necessarily on browsing or not necessarily on the sort of the serendipity that you get when you're doing research in a more traditional with print sources. Um, 
So that's really challenging. And the other challenge that I find is that with a lot of content that's moving online that's not necessarily owned by libraries that we're subscribing to, now I'm wearing my e-resources hat, <laughs> um, the content isn't, because it's not owned by the library, we don't necessarily have um, proprietary rights to it or we can't get the metadata as easily from the publishers. Um, so it's also harder to build databases because we don't necessarily have access to that information. Because you um, don't actually own this we video to own upload it. it to we don't own it. We YouTube can't share it necessarily. Or exactly, right. exactly. So there are many challenges with just libraries and, and moving to E um, that go beyond even food, but that just sort of, you know, are color everything when, it, when we're moving from print to E. So I'll, I'll ask you both, what is the greatest challenge moving forward in terms of preserving collections and continuing to add to them do you think well, over think, the next few years I think what Rebecca has said is one of, of the, the key problems of all uh, electronic media and, and digital problems we have the same thing you know that the, these various databases don't talk to one another and trying to search across them is very difficult and the average scholar doesn't even know how many different databases they have to search on and so and these are people who are professional students even have more difficulty and uh, there doesn't seem to be a really good solution that uh, coming down the pipes anytime soon for that though certainly the people like Rebecca and, and our electronic services people are, are trying to make this easier, but I, it is, it's a very difficult problem. And one thing I'd like to say about food that I found from doing research on food is that um, historically so little attention was paid to food documentation that the resources that are out there tend to be riddled with errors, uh, unlike uh, other disciplines where there might have been, where, you know, the, even the New York Times Index for food and recipes ends up having tons of errors. And if those get digitized, nobody's going to go back and check to see if the page numbers are correct. So there's, there's a problem in doing food research in general uh, that I found. Um, and I don't know if I suspect Rebecca has found the same thing, that they just weren't indexed uh, adequately, or popular journals may not have been acquired or indexed at all. Um, and it's, it's a real problem. Yeah, and I think that researchers... Um if something's not indexed online, um, like a lot of trade journals, for example, food trade journals, fantastic, sure. fantastic material, it's called slow research. People don't necessarily want to pull all the back issues of, you know, Poultry Weekly to find what they're looking for. They're, you know, hoping that it's indexed. So I think um, there are sources that aren't necessarily being consulted um, that haven't been indexed, that haven't been digitized, that are that are great resources. And um, I think online indices are fantastic, obviously, but there's there's still Still a lot more to do. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the the perfect world is this intersection of the analog and the digital. While digital provides access to so many things and an ability to scan a lot of information at one time, there's still very much to be gained by walking into your library and just strolling through the stacks or flipping through the cards and the magazines. Well, yeah, I think we live in a I think we live in a hybrid world right now, and we will be for quite some time. Um, just because our researchers, and I'm sure Marvin feels the same way, you know, we have many ebooks, uh, you know, academic ebooks, trade trade book ebooks. Um, researchers want both. You know, they want the convenience sometimes of a of an ebook to find a chapter that they're looking for a citation, but they want to read the print. Um, it's it's just a much better use of technology, I think. 
No, it's certainly there, and especially with when you're talking about food, which is an embodied practice. And by that, I mean I'm interested in the physicality in which we interact with cookbooks, for instance. Or you know, you don't learn to cook from a cookbook. You have to stand next to a person who really shows you how to cook. Um, it's especially this is especially foregrounded with food print materials, I think, and I don't see that going away anytime soon. So we have just about one minute left, and I would love for each of you to give our listeners a piece of advice on how to manage their own collections. I myself have boxes and boxes of cookbooks in storage here in Brooklyn that don't fit into my apartment. I'm not quite up to 11,000, but I do have quite a few, and I have the part of the information ages, I have enormous amounts of photos and downloads and links and digital pictures and clips and PDFs. So as a person who does collect a lot of materials, what what's your advice to me about how to wrangle my collection <laughs> well on a, on a personal level um for the print cookbooks in your in your collection your personal collection i use the the eat your books do you know this eatyourbooks.com i do not it indexes your print collection of your of your print books so you can type in like you know um raspberry sorbet and it will go through all the cookbooks in your personal collection and tell you which cookbooks have a recipe for that i find that quite helpful eatthisbook.com I think it's eatyourbooks.com eatyourbooks.com fantastic that's a great yes. tip uh, that's a really wonderful resource unfortunately I don't use it I still have mine very old fashioned maybe it's because I'm a rare book librarian um, they're sitting on the shelf organized by cuisine or by or if it's an index or a, a, a encyclopedia I think it's best to organize your materials the way you use them um, and uh, that's what we do. When, when we get collections in, especially of archives, we always preserve their original order. We can't do that with books, unfortunately. But, uh, um, yeah, and I love, to, I love to stick notes in mind where the best recipes are and fold down the pages. Yeah, you always, if you're going to your mother's, uh, through her cookbooks, and you want the best one, get the one that's the most beat up. <laughs> Good to know. Well, I want to thank Marvin and Rebecca for joining us today, and Jack for pushing all the right buttons and picking the good theme song. And thank you all for listening. And here on Tech Bytes, every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on heritageradionetwork.org. If you liked it, click on, listen again, and look through the archives. There are hundreds and hundreds of really wonderful shows. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.